So how you been? Well, I'm back in the um, back in the hemisphere. It was um, a, a long trip to and from Mauritius. I can imagine. How long was it? Let's see. It's uh, on the way there was uh, about six and a half hours to London. There was a five-hour layover in London, then a twelve-hour flight to Mauritius. On the way back, it was a twelve-hour flight to Paris, and then a seven and a half-hour flight to uh, Toronto. And boy, are your arms tired. Ah, yeah, there we go. Somebody had to say it. However, I have to tell you that I did not know that Mauritius, as well as being the last known address of the dodo bird, is also a fine, fine rum-producing country. (laughs) You brought this up last time. Did you finally find something you liked? Oh, I have a glass of this. It's called Charmel. I went to the, uh, the Rue Marie, uh, up in the mountains in the uh, southern end of the uh, country. And uh, I bought this uh, five-year-old sippin' rum. And I got to tell you. Sippin' rum? Yeah, you don't mix it with anything. It's you a- just sort of sit there on the porch looking at the world going by? <laughs> oh, there you go. Ah. <laughs> that came back at you. Ow! Ow, that hurt. I, okay, I tried to sip it coolly. Ow! Oh, went up my nose. Oh. <laughs> Dude, give it up. Oh. <laughs> it's good, though. I really like it. <laughs> do, do you need a minute? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Are you sure? Oh, yeah. It's kind of like a... Yeah, no, I'm good. You talk for a little bit. I'll be okay. Oh, God. I'm tearing up. <laughs> oh, but like I said, it's really, really smooth. <laughs> From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Note, Geeks and Beats is for external use only. Cease use if itching persists. Nerdiest album ever. We'll introduce you to some tunes you can't hear unless you've got some elite Linux skills. Holodeck 1.0, the Oculus Rift virtual reality headset takes a giant leap into the 23rd century. Hey, E.T. has been found in a New Mexico landfill, and there's no way he's calling home in his condition. And we'll introduce you to the producer of a documentary about synthesizers and why he dreams of wires. Plus a Geeks and Beats update on how you can join the staff of the world's most popular podcast. If the money was any worse, you'd be paying us. And now... Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. I had some other stuff that I think, uh, and I can't remember what it was called, but it was uh, the bar shot, whatever they had on the rail at the uh, at the, at the hotel, and um, I had one mixed with some Coke, and I should have guessed there was a problem when when you looked at the glass from eye level, you could see that there was some sort of effluent coming off the top of the liquid <laughs> it was smoking was it wasn't, it wasn't smoking <laughs> it was it was more that there was some sort of 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 oxygen alcohol combustion happening that if had there had been any kind of open flame it's not that the there would have been an explosion but because of the shape of the glass i think it would have replicated a jet engine or a rocket engine and that glass would have fired right through the table and right through the floor and you put this stuff in your body i did and um i did it once and uh i woke up in the morning uh, in the middle of the night with this killer headache and i thought oh well, it's just jet like so i did it again and then i woke up with another killer headache the following night so uh I'm, uh, I'm 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 off that stuff. However, I did buy a bottle of it for my friend, and and I'm going to make her drink it in front of me. <laughs> Hang on. So, something that gave you migraines two mornings in a row, you decided to unleash upon your friend. This is oh, these are not migraines, my friend. These were aneurysms, full-on cerebral hemorrhages. And and the product again, just in case we stumble across it in the LCBO. No, you won't. <laughs> they would never let it in the country. Never. <laughs> but my friend, who is a big, uh, you know, she says that she can drink any rum that has been distilled anywhere on the planet. Now, there are two rums that I know that she can't handle. One is called Jack Iron, which is made on the Caribbean island of 
uh, carrier coup. Um, <clears throat> that sounds like he made up that name. No, no, no. It's it's a small island off the coast of Grenada, and uh, there there's um, one gas station on the island. No, wait. wait oh, the- I'm sorry. That just you were buying your booze at the gas no, no, station. No, no, no. There's one gas station on the island, and a hundred rum shops. Okay, and local economists will say that this is unsustainable because there are too many gas stations. <laughs> I actually tracked down a bottle of this stuff, and I'll tell you the story. It's a long, involved story, but I, I, I tracked down a bottle of this stuff, and it almost got me killed. I went to a, uh, a shady place in a village that is the only place in the Western Hemisphere where they still allow whaling, okay? And uh, I got, uh, let's just say I was the only white guy for about a billion miles around, and I took a shot of this stuff, and it nearly killed me. Okay, Ahab. <laughs> I have a bottle of it here. The other rum that is uh, the tremendously bad is uh, made in Haiti, and uh, it's not measured in years or months in terms of age. It's measured in terms of hours. And if you can get that stuff down, uh, well, you have a really hearty constitution, or at least you used to. We're going to have to rename the show Geeks and Booze. No. <laughs> yeah, it... Uh, Sorry, and then of course on the way back from Paris, uh, way back in Paris, uh, which has a fantastic duty-free um, boutique at Charles de Gaulle, um, I bought uh, a copy of my or a bottle of my my special Nika whiskey from from Japan, which you said you were going to throw my way. Mm, I'm going to give you a drink of it. Oh, I'm going to give you a sip of it. Yeah, you know what? It, based upon what you've just told me, I don't know if I want to have anything to do with anything you put in a glass. No, this is. This is... Oh, hang on. Oh, oh, excuse me. It's burning a hole in my desk. No. <laughs> no. The, uh, the the sip from earlier is is now in my brain. Okay. Ah, we'll just put okay. that over there for now. Otherwise, we won't make it through the, the program. Well, one of us won't. Well, you should do the disclaimer. The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers or the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms division. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is this is one hell of a uh, hell of a sipping rum. You found the nerdiest album ever. Oh yeah! Now this was uh, this is a group called Netcat, not to be confused with the network tool of the same name, has decided to release their album in a variety of formats. Uh, it's available digitally. I think it's available as a CD. It's probably available as as uh, vinyl as well. But they have also they've also released this album as a Linux kernel module. <laughs> so, so in order to listen to this album, if you want to do it this way, you have to compile your own Linux kernel module. I'm going to read what it says. And they did this just because of for, for fun. Oh, fun. Welcome to the most unnecessarily complicated Netcat album format release yet. In this repository, you'll be able to compile your own kernel module, creating a slash dev slash netcat device, and redirect its output to an audio player, tested with mPlayer and play from SOX as well. This repository contains the album's track data and source files that, for complexity's sake, came from .og files that were encoded from .wav files that were created from <laughs> .mp3 files that were recorded from the master .wav files, which were generated from, pool, uh, from Pro Tools Final Mix .wav files that were created created from a 24 log analog master tape so for an anti-compression guy you must just your brain must be exploding over this exactly i mean what's left of this thing and the fact that you have to uh you've got to compile it i mean i don't do you run linux anywhere in your house no 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 i my nerditude does not extend to linux there are there's a guy who lives next door to me who strangely enough, got dialed into Linux, and he's just a regular schmo, and now he's become evangelical about it. And, you know, you thought that there were Mac nerds and Windows nerds? Oh, no, 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 no. The Linux people could be just worse. Oh, my God. Mm. So, no, I've got absolutely nothing to do with Linux. I know a little bit of Linux because back in the Internet, before it was the Internet as we know it today, you would have to know Linux or Unix to be able to access the Internet. And I did. But it's been probably 20 years since I typed in an LS command. I had a Linux box on an old computer, uh, old Windows computer that I wiped and I installed. I can't, Red Hat, maybe. I can't remember. Yeah, of course. Um, but... 
I just gave up. I mean, why? It just wasn't. Listen, I've got I've got a Windows box for all the stuff that I need to do Windows type programs on. I've got all my Macs, which are fine for everything else. Why do I need a third operating system? Speaking of which, um, do you actually have a Windows box, or have you played around with Parallels or Boot no, Camp or anything like that? Now, before before uh, Cupertino got its hooks deeply into me, I built a machine with a guy uh, at a local computer store. And uh, at the time, it was really, really cutting edge. I mean, I had a solid-state uh, boot drive. Oh. And, and a couple of, uh, I think, one-terabyte drives in a RAID mm-hmm. array, uh, RAID 1. Um, and, and the thing won't die. It just won't die. And it, I think it's, it's approaching five years old. And it's as fast as ever. And um, I'm, running window, I'm running Windows 7 on it, which is perfectly fine. And I don't see any reason to get rid of it right now. So what do you make of this album itself, though? I don't know. I haven't listened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 whole point, the whole point was it was just so complex that I forgot to listen. <laughs> well, see, this is the thing about Linux is you would spend your entire afternoon compiling and decompiling the damn album that by the time you were done, you would forget to listen to it. Yes, Exactly. Uh, I have no idea if anybody's... I would like to know... Okay, I'll put this in the show notes, of course. If anybody who is a Linux evangel- uh, evangelist wants to, to, to compile this album in such a way that they can listen to it uh, in the way it was designed, uh, let us know. Good luck with that. <laughs> yes. Meantime, I found something that I thought was right up your alley. This is the Star Trek for Oculus Rift. Now, I want you to... Walk me through Oculus Rift. Okay, and and I can because I have used the Oculus Rift. The Oculus Rift is a is a it's a virtual reality goggle thing that just stick on your head. Uh, and oh, that's the one face, Facebook bought, right? That's the one Facebook bought, and it's not ready for prime time just yet. There are a couple of problems with it, but one of the biggest problems that virtual reality goggles have always had that this does not is that when you turn your head, you move it in any direction whatsoever, there's a very slight yet perceptible lag. So Mm -hmm. your brain says this isn't real instantly because it knows that I turned my head, yet there was this minor lag. You don't have that with the Oculus Rift. So you become quite immersed into the 3D world. Now, the problem with the Rift is that the little screens that are in front of your eyeballs are too low a resolution for it to feel realistic just by looking. You're very much aware that you're looking at computer screens, but because the head response is so accurate, your brain quickly forgets that what you're looking at isn't real. And they sat me down in a chair. First of all, they sit you down in a chair if you want to experience this, because if you're standing, you're going to fall down. You completely lose every sense of where you are in the real world. And they ran me through a simulation of a roller coaster. No. I am not a roller coaster person. And I actually at times had to close my eyes. I thought I was going to be motion sick. Really? That realistic? It was that realistic. So I thought, considering that Facebook bought Oculus Rift for bajillions of dollars, that um, maybe we would see some things that would make it worthwhile for you to run out and drop the couple thousand bucks it would cost uh, for you to get the full kit. And Thomas Kaldek has recreated the USS Voyager Bridge. Okay, right there, I'm going to stop you. Why Voyager? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe he's got a thing for chick captains. Uh, For what, Captain Janeway? No. Did you not have a thing for Janeway? No, my She was a little older than me, but actually, she's probably about your age at the time that the show came out. Probably still is the same age. Nah, I was was more Gates McFadden, Dr. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Wesley Crusher's mom. Mom, yeah. Dr. Milf, whatever her name is. Dr. Milf. Okay. Well, this is a, an incredible recreation of the bridge. And actually, you can see the original file that you would use because it, it splits it into the binocular view so oh, that you can see yeah. the whole thing. I see that. Okay. Yeah. And there, there's really not a heck Whoa. of a lot to do. 
but yeah, look at that. You, when you look around, you are looking around the bridge. And is it full 3D? Oh, completely, dude. And this is the thing about the Oculus Rift, is is that if you create a 3D world, like any shoot 'em up video game in 3D can become an Oculus Rift video game. You just need that second view slightly off-center so that you've got the left and the right eye doing their own thing. Wow, I want to play Wolfenstein with this. Exactly. So the thing about Wolfenstein is that the graphics are so incredibly poor, but you would get so caught up into the 3D nature of it that you would forget that you're playing what is equivalent to a 20-year-old video game. Can you imagine this in, like, Gears of War or something? Well, this is where wow. it's going, right? The only problem right now is that it's incredibly heavy. This is not the kind of thing you would spend any significant length of time attached to your head. No, it looks like a Daft Punk helmet. It does. But, but you know, that, okay, this is version one. It's just a matter of time before they shrink it down to the size of Google Glass. Well, that's kind of what I'm thinking, is that Facebook may have the cash necessary to plow the R&D money into making the screen smaller, yet resolution higher. Like, I can imagine if you would take iPhone-style screens with that retina display that, granted, even though it's only a couple of inches away from your eyeballs, and that you would see fewer of the pixels, and you would feel that much more immersed. You know what you do to advance this technology? What do you do to advance this technology? You turn it over to the porn industry. Again with the porn industry. Okay, so you turn it into... But the, the whole point of the Rift is that you are looking around, so you would have to computer-generate the pornography, wouldn't you? No, well, I mean, yeah, listen. So now you're, now you're dealing with pixelated boobies, and again, that, that whole I-know-it's-not-real thing kicks in. We'll see. I say turn it over to the porn industry. We'll have something on the street next week. <laughs> Did you see that they found E.T. in New Mexico? I know. And I'm OK. I'm going to look. Apparently, you can play this game. Uh, E.T. Atari 2600. There is a emulator game online that you can play. For those not familiar with this, um, the Atari cartridge ET from 1983 is widely considered to be the talisman of its demise. What what brought down Atari was a whole collection of things, but nothing epitomized the fall from grace than perhaps the worst video game ever created. It was clearly rushed to take advantage of the popularity of the movie. They had six weeks, six weeks to program this thing. And, and that is no time whatsoever for a game, let alone a game where you've got to put so much into the, such little space of, of an Atari cartridge. Originally, they sold quite well uh, by the hundreds, but almost everything was returned. And so what they ended up doing with the thousands of Atari cartridges is allegedly, and this was the whole urban legend, is that they were buried in a landfill in New Mexico. So a documentary team thought, let's see if we can find them. And sure enough, they have. Yeah, they did. And they what they did was they, they, they rolled over them. Apparently, this was done in Alamogordo, Mexico which was about 80 miles south of where the games were manufactured. And uh, they did it in the middle of the night, and just to make sure that nobody would go out there and dig them all up, they ran over them with a bulldozer. Yep. And uh, they, 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 you know, became this urban legend. And so when, you, when they recovered them, some of them looked to be in fairly good condition. Well, you can't hit them all. Maybe all you need to do is blow into the cartridge and it'll work again. <laughs> Where have we got? Uh, uh, no, that's not it. But there's an emulator online someplace. All right, you uh, find it. You put it into the show notes so that we can all play this crappy game for about four seconds before we go. You know what? There's a reason they put it in a landfill. Oh, and the 8-bit the eight bit sound is really fun. So go to geeksandbeats.com and you'll find it right there. Back in the 1960s, scientists found this really unusual noise deep in the ocean.
oh, I saw this, but I, I didn't follow up on it. What was it? 50 years. They couldn't figure out what it was. They thought it was a submarine because it was submarine personnel in the 60s who found it. They thought it sounded like a duck. Yeah, it was a weird quacky thing. Yeah. And it's been recorded at various locations in the Southern Ocean, but until now, its source had been a mystery. In February of last year, an international team of researchers deployed acoustic tags on two Antarctic minke whales. Is it minke or mink whales? Um, I don't know. I know not. Uh, and uh, the acoustic analysis of the data has just come back and published April 23rd in Biology Letters. It's a whale. It is. It's more accurately... A whale fart. What? Yeah. That, wait, that? <laughs> it's the Antarctic minke whale or Balaenoptera bonarensis. 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 This is a flatulent whale. Uh, apparently, the sound was made in higher and lower latitudes during the winter season, and that's what had contributed to its initial mystery. Okay. Well, I'm glad we solved that problem. Now we can move to Loch Ness and figure out if that image that we saw from from space on, on Google Earth was actually Nessie. You saw that, right? I saw that. It's clearly the trail of some guy doing donuts in the water. I, I think it's a guy in a, on a on a jet ski or something. Some, some drunken Scottish guy went out for a drink after too many scotches. <laughs> drunken Scottish guy in Scotland? Well, you know, could be. I don't know. Retro synthesizer porn. Oh, have you seen this thing? This is really cool. This was built the year I was born. Well, the original one was the um, the original Moog uh, modular system. Now, when when Bob Moog was creating his his first commercially available synthesizers, they were these giant things that were like bar fridges that you strap together with uh, miles and miles of uh, patch cords. And one of the guys he had working with him was Keith Emerson of the band Emerson, Lincoln Palmer. And he had these gigantic walls of synthesizer modules on stage with him. He had six people that would look after this thing when the band was on, on tour. took six people to control it? Well, not to control it, but to move it and care and feed for it, because these things were delicate, and they required an awful lot of, well, patch cording in order to, um, uh, in order to, to, to um, operate. Now, Keith Emerson's also had uh, uh, an opening in the top that fired rockets, but uh, so they needed a pilot guy. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. I'm dead, dead serious about that. So, so sidebar in our uh, at the Business News Network, the switcher, which is the the big console that you know, switches different cameras and all sorts of different sources. We bought it from the World Wrestling Federation, <laughs> and it, it's pyrotechnic as well. So when they cut to my camera, they can trigger pyrotechnics. <laughs> That's awesome. You imagine at BNN. Let's check the stocks. Kablooey. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, sidebar over. Uh, so, so what they've done, what Moga's done is they've, they've, they've had to retro engineer the Moog modular uh, in time for the 50th anniversary of the release of this thing. And uh, people are going, you know, nuts about this because it's, see, it's an analog synthesizer that's put together with, with patch cords, which means even though you put it together the same way each time, because of the nature of the circuitry, it won't quite sound exactly the same each time, which makes it rather interesting and temperamental. But And because it's an analog synthesizer, the sounds are just, you know, they're, they're things that you have a really hard time 
um, duplicating in a digital environment. So, uh, you know, people are, are, are just like nuts about these things. You know who we should bring in on this conversation? Who's that? Jason Am from the documentary I Dream of Wires. Oh, yes, absolutely. Let's, uh, I want to talk to him about this. Yeah, because uh, they were down at uh, the big Mog Fest, and uh, he showed off his, his big documentary at the time. Joining us now is Jason Am of I Dream of Wires. Jason, thanks for joining us. Hi. So what made you want to sit down and document the history of a very specific synthesizer? Well, I didn't start the project. It was actually um, the director of the film. I'm the producer on, on I Dream of Wires. And the director of the film uh, started the project on his own. Um, and actually, what it was that he... Uh, I can tell you the, the, the pivotal moment for him where he kind of decided to, to, to cover this subject was um, he... When he was young, he came across uh, in a public library, there was just a small selection of, of vinyl records. And for some strange reason, there was two very pivotal early um, electronic music records that were in this tiny little section of vinyl. Um, one of them was uh, Switched On Bach, which is the, uh, the, the Walter Carlos uh, Moog modular synthesizer record that kind of was the first record that really hit the mainstream um, to, you know, let people know about synthesizers. Um, and then the other record that was in that bin was a Morton Subotnik record using the, the, the other kind of um, main 1960s modular synthesizer, which was the, the Buchla system. Um, and the Buchla system has a very, like, kind of, it looks kind of like a, like a spaceship console. It's a, you know, this was in this, in, I guess when, when the director Robert came across this record, would have been like the early 70s and you know he was a young guy and he was like fascinated by by science fiction and stuff like that um and so this album cover just you know totally burned its way into his mind um and he had, you know he later on did get into synthesizers and stuff like that and then kind of got out of it um and actually recently like a few years ago when he um actually his son started getting interested in electronic music and one of the artists that his son you know discovered early on was uh, was dead mouse and there was actually a post that dead mouse had made to facebook saying like like yo dudes check out this this wicked modular synthesizer that i picked up and it was a bukla and robert kind of you know this image was burned into his mind of, of this Morton Subotnik record and kind of you know he thought this was a 1960s instrument he had no idea that that you know what's dead mouse doing with this instrument um and then he sort of started looking into it and he realized that well actually the, the um dead mouse isn't using a 1960s bukla bukla actually has started manufacturing these things again and then he started looking more and, and discovered that there was um um a lot of new companies that were um, making modular synthesizers again um, and he just thought this was was fascinating. Um, first of all, just he he ended up buying himself a small uh, new modular system, and he just uh, he's a filmmaker and he he works on a lot of commercial productions. And he actually had a little bit of money and a little bit of time to do kind of a little uh, fun project of his own. And he actually thought that this would be a uh, like a, an interesting uh, subject. So he just kind of. It was basically seeing this this photo of Dead Mouse with a with a Buchla synthesizer that kind of triggered him to explore this subject. And you know, once he started looking into it, he saw that there's actually this huge resurgence, and he just thought it was something fascinating that he wanted to 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 document. Was didn't Bob Moog and Don Buchla work together, or were they friends or or co-workers or something? No, um, they were actually kind of. Um, Actually, in the film, what you kind of learn when, when, when we go through the history is that they were kind of doing similar things, but yet with completely different philosophies on the opposite side of the coast. Like, so, so actually, the, the, um, Bob Moog was doing this stuff in New York, um, and Don Buchla was doing this stuff um, in San Francisco, and they were not really even aware of each other, and they actually kind of came up with two completely different um, synthesizer um, approaches, 
which really, you know, were graphic, you know, geographically separate, but also just from a different mind frame. Like, um, basically, the Moog synthesizer kind of is the one that that went on to to become the synthesizer philosophy that people developed, which was kind of like attaching a keyboard to a to a modular synthesizer. And um, you know, this was the this was the synthesizer that like Keith Emerson adopted, and that was used for switched on box. So it kind of, because, because Bob Moe kind of thought to attach this keyboard to it, people were able to approach it like a, like a, like a, like an instrument that you could play, you know, melodic music on. Whereas Buchla on the West coast, there was no keyboard on that. It was like kind of more approaching it, um, from a, you know, crazy out there. Um, let's make music, let's make sounds that has nothing to do with, you know, 12 tone music. Um, and so he kind of like avoided the idea of having a, a, a keyboard on, on his synthesizer, um, and you know was using this synthesizer at a lot of these kind of um, West Coast like you know San Francisco hippie uh, freakout events. Like he, for example, <laughs> used to used to take the 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 the, uh, the, the Buchla system. I mean Don Buchla himself would bring the system onto the uh, the Ken Casey uh, bus. You know that that famous what's the, what's the name of that bus? Oh, the electric Kool Aid acid test exactly. bus. So yes, the, the soundtrack for the electric Kool Aid acid test thing on the bus was Don Buchla, you know, making weird sound effects on this on the Buchla synthesizer. Yeah, so, now that you mention it, I remember that now. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I remember the Buchla synthesizer, the, the original one, which was very much like a, a British one called the V uh, EMS VCS three. Oh yeah, totally. Which was used by Roger Waters on uh, the Dark Side of the Moon album, and uh, Brian Eno used it with some of the early Roxy Music stuff. But it was this weird sort of God, it, you know, you you patched it together with 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 pins. The, pins, yes, with pins. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, you know that 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 synthesizer again is coming more from the. Like basically, you know, when people when people who are like heavy duty synth nerds. Uh, talk about synths, they'll often talk about West Coast synthesis versus East Coast synthesis. Of course, you know, most people who are just kind of, you know, like electronic music are not necessarily going to get this deep into it. But basically what, you know, when, when you talk about uh, East Coast synthesis, it's kind of like what what synthesizer music really did become, which is like, you know, using synthesizers with a keyboard to play kind of like melodic, poppy stuff. And the West Coast synthesis thing, which was the, kind of the pioneered by Buchla, is this idea of like using um, using a synthesizer to create the most way out atonal sounds and sound effects. Um, and definitely the, the EMS synth that was adopted by uh, you know a lot of the more out there kind of '70s bands, like you know um, Pink Floyd used it, but they used it for like kind of more psychedelic. Uh, you know beds you know psychedelic kind of atmospheres and things like that you, you know there's bands like Hawkwind that used those types of instruments as well and of course yeah Roxy Brian you know was using that in uh, in Roxy music and they didn't want to play like you know bass lines they wanted like crazy out there um, soundscapes well, it reminds me as well of the early days of personal computers. You know, when you ask somebody what the first personal computer was, they may be inclined to say, oh, it was an, it was an Apple. Well, actually, no. The Altair was one of the first personal computers. You built it as a kit. It had no keyboard. It had switches. It had lights. That was the extent of it. And it took guys like Jobs and Wozniak to put a keyboard to it and put it on uh, your standard home television screen before the adoption increased to to be able to say, yes, this is in fact a personal computer. I, I wonder if there's a similarity there with the the evolution and the uh, the demand for a synthesizer because previously I can imagine it was the sort of thing that was limited to the wizards who could figure out how to put it together in the first place. Yeah, well, I mean, this is really what the what the what the film documents. It's kind of like um, it, these these guys came out with these modular synthesizer systems but it was like an idea that was kind of too far ahead of its time so we kind of um, are showing um, okay here's where this idea of a synthesizer really came from and it started off with these with these modular synthesizer systems um, and then we actually kind of um, explain how you know in order for really the synthesizer to reach 
um, the masses, it had to get continually kind of, I mean, this is not really the right way of putting it, but like, I don't know how else to say this right now, but it had to get like dumbed down continually until it got to the point that you had a synthesizer, like the one that, you know, really uh, revel would be like the Yamaha DX7 where it's like you have buttons where you choose like piano, you know, trumpet or whatever. So basically we were kind of showing how uh, everything started off with this with this uh, this giant modular system, but it was something that people weren't ready for. And now what's going on now is that, I mean, I think that um, electronic music is now really so prevalent. I mean, if you listen to the charts right now, Everything is electronic music now. I mean, if you listen to, uh, you know, hip hop, R&B and all these kind of music, this this is the stuff that is dominating the charts now. And if you listen to it, there is like it's just dominated by electronic, very blatant, blatantly synthesized um, sounds. And so there's always going to be these, you know, electronic music freaks that are going to want to do something even weirder and even crazier and this is kind of really a big part of why there's now a resurgence in like let's go back to this this machine which was ultimately kind of the most um the most advanced synthesizer the one that's going to give you the most sonic possibilities the one that like if you really want to customize a sound uh you know an electronic music sound that's going to be unique and that's going to be um your own you know, the modular synthesizer is going to be the, the ultimate tool for you. And I think that's why there is now um, a huge resurgence in um, people that are um, interested in picking up modular synthesizers. You're seeing more and more, um, more and more mainstream bands that are using them now. Um, so you were playing at uh, the Mog Fest. You played I, I Dream of Wires. What was the reaction like? And where does it go from here? Yeah, the reaction was great. Um, we actually, we actually, um, what we did first is about, it was in, I think, September of last year, we financed the entire film through, um, through Indiegogo, um, like crowdsourcing. Um, and for that, for that crowd, basically like the hardcore synth nerds, um, we released like a four hour cut on DVD and Blu-ray and we've actually uh, amassed quite a huge buzz on that alone. Like we've sold uh, about 8,000 copies of that film so far, the four hour nerd cut. So this, this, this at MoFest was really the premiere of this uh, trimmed down cut, which is hopefully to try to, you know, people that are maybe not necessarily synth nerds, but that um, are interested in an off in electronic music that would, they would kind of like to get um, a, a history of, um, you know, this is really the story of how, how the instrument came to be that, that you know, that, you, that you, people are using so much now. Well, considering um, so the this nature... was kind of the first step of that. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I was just going to interrupt you there, um, yeah. but uh, finish your thought, please. Oh, um, so this was the this was the premiere of that, and I mean, it actually it was a great um, it was a great um, place to do that because basically a ton of people were in town who were just electronic music fans, and I actually you know did speak to a number of people after the screen who said kind of exactly what I you know would have hoped is like oh you know I knew about about Moogs you know I know they know it's it's Moog Fest. Um, and the Moog store is in town and they've seen people playing, you know, mini Moogs and or using like um, the, the Moog synth um, app on their iPad or whatever. But I didn't, you know, I really didn't know all this other stuff. I didn't really, you know, know anything about Bukla or, or any of the other kind of steps that, that led up to this. Um, so it seemed to, you know, that that's kind of the, the goal of, of this shorter cut is to really not not play it for people who are already geeks about this subject, but to, you know, people who are a little, a little less, um, synth nerd oriented, just to appreciate understanding the history of, of, of music and that want to get a sense of where this is all coming from. So, uh, this is the, yeah, we had two screenings at Moogfest and we've got, uh, a, another screening lined up at uh, a Chicago film festival this coming weekend. Um, and we've got probably, I think we've got about, 10 more screenings lined up so far. Um, so we're just going to kind of keep uh, rolling with this, with these screenings. 
um, until you know until there's no more uh, interest in it, and then I guess we'll probably end up doing a, a you know a digital release through iTunes or Netflix or something like that. There seems to be um, quite a bit of interest. You know, it seems to be um, we don't seem to be having a really hard time um, finding an audience for this for this film, which is I guess rare. Well, all the best to you, sir. And I think the uh, the Wi-Fi and, and the crappy Skype in the background, it just does nothing more than pay homage to <laughs> the old analog nature of yeah, your world. The buzzing sound of analog circuits, sure. Yes, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> all the best. Thanks again, Jason. Okay, thank you. Thanks. London, Bangkok, New York. Cincinnati from the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. This is a GNB News update. Uh, one tip of the hat to uh, William parentheses John Moore for tweeting out that uh, he might suggest to one of his friends one of his favorite podcasts, Geeks and Beats. Quote: Very smart, funny, and informative. Oh, good. Thank you. Clearly not listening to our show <laughs> or all the way through. <laughs> Oh, can I uh, can I just drop in a uh, a job opening here? You've got a job opening? Yeah, I'm working with an online company called Flink Fame, and if you're in the Toronto area, and you're able to come to a uh, information session where you might be able to get a job being a paid music writer, drop me a line, Alan at AlanCross.ca. Put music writer in the subject line, and uh, it, this is going to happen at 7:30 on. Thursday, May the 1st. So if you hear this, you know, the 30th or May 1st, you've got a chance. Um, at a location to be determined. But if you want to be a paid music writer, uh, here's an opportunity to learn more about it. It's, it's, it sounds sleazy like Wolf of Wall Street stuff, but it's not. It's, it's the real deal. Wait, wait a minute. I'm just about to tell everyone that there's, there are three job openings on the Geeks and Beats podcast in which we will pay you absolutely nothing. Yet here you are pumping a, an actual paying gig. Yeah. We, we have three openings now? Well, what we're looking for is we're looking for a, a writer, someone who can uh, spruce up the website and, and keep some of the content uh, interesting and fresh. We're looking for a webmaster who can take the show to the next level on geeksandbeats.com. Mm -hmm. But we're also looking for a video producer because we've been receiving a lot of positive comments about those uh, Google Plus Hangouts that we did, the live to air shows. But the problem is, is that I end up having to push all the buttons. I end up being the technical guy as well as the on-camera guy. Mm -hmm. And it's almost impossible to juggle all of those balls at once. So we're looking for someone uh, who would like to be a part of the show. Uh, we'll, we'll include you. You can, you can be in on the big thing as well. We'll get you a little headset and everything. And uh, you could actually be the one responsible for doing the video end of the show. So if you've got you know director aspirations or anything like that, we would love to, to find out if you'd be interested in, in joining us doing the shows live to air uh, with uh, with the cameras rolling. Yeah, you know what? I would like, yes, okay, and I'll, I'll sweeten it a little bit. Um, I could use some help for with my site, journalofmusicalthings.com. So uh, if you want to do twice the work for the same <laughs> money, apply now. Thanks, pal. <laughs> yeah. I, hey, listen, put it on your resume. I mean, listen, these are legitimate business operations. You could put it on your resume anyway. You don't even need to actually do any work. If you go to geeksandbeats.com slash donate, we'll give you a co-producer credit on the big show. 25 bucks. It's just like Hollywood. You open up your wallet, you get credit for doing absolutely nothing. You're a producer. That's how it works. Exactly. If you want something in return for a donation, you can also go to geeksandbeats.com to the swag store and buy yourself a miracle travel mug of traveling or one of the craptastic coffee mugs, uh, such as the one I've got sitting on my desk right now. I performed an experiment with a miracle travel mug of traveling. Oh, yes. And um, I made some coffee this morning. Uh, and I, I sealed it up in the coffee mug. Uh, that was at 740 Okay, 7.40 this morning, fresh, full-to-the-top coffee. That miracle travel mug of traveling kept that coffee hot, not just warm, but hot, until I sipped the last bit of it at 9.25. Like an hour and 40 minutes later. I forgot about it. 
Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.